Hello, welcome to the Nourishing Liberty podcast. I'm your host, Liz Reitzig. I have a really special guest with us today. I'm so excited to introduce her, but first we're gonna just get the housekeeping out of the way. Where can you find us? Nourishingliberty.com. This podcast is on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. So please find us there and like and subscribe and share with your friends if you find any of this content useful. And now I want to introduce a really good friend and a fellow champion uh, food freedom woman and mother, Sally. And Sally, what? how do you want people to know your last name? Sally O? Sally O is how you'll find me everywhere. Yes, yes. Um, and I've known that to be true for many years. Yeah. And I want to give a really quick overview of who Sally is to me so the audience can know you a little bit better. So Sally and I met many years ago when we were in different stages of our parenting journey. Sally is a few years older than me. That's yours to say if you want to, (laughs) Sally. Quite a few. (laughs) And uh, you're somebody I've looked up to and admired always through this whole journey. And part of what I admire so much about you is your constant curiosity and your learning and your willingness to open your mind and discover new things and new ways to help your health and help your family and help your community. And that's for, for our culture. I think it's, it's a little bit unusual because often people get a little bit stuck in their ways or Um, we, we stick to one path of learning or one ideology, and then we just pursue that ideology. And I've always found some camaraderie with you in that, because I'm, I'm excited about this new thing over here. And, you know, to be clear, what I'm not, I'm not talking about the latest study that tells us broccoli is healthy or the latest study that tells us to X, Y, or Z. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about much broader pursuit of knowledge and also the willingness and the ability to question what we've already learned and to constantly revisit that content mm-hmm. and then to be excited about learning new things. So Sally, first of all, let's start with how do people find you? And then please launch right into how do you stay so curious? Well, people can find me on my blog, which is www.sallysreallife.com. And I'm everywhere. My handle on all the social media is XOSallyO. So X-O-S-A-L-L-Y-O. And while you were talking, a couple things came to me. Like, uh, first of all, my husband, when I met my husband, he was not like anybody I was ever going to marry, although he was so cute. I, you know, he asked me out and I was like, yes. Um, but he, uh, he described himself as a libertarian curmudgeon. And I was a, you know, I was quite, um, a, the tree hugger at the time. And he said, you know, one day he said that we, we talked about having children and we adopted and Uh, He said, well, we're going to homeschool. And I said, homeschool, why would we do that? And so we talked about that, you know, schooling has become indoctrination. It's not really about learning 
things, um, a learning history and, and becoming a critical thinker. It's about following, following orders and raising your hand to pee. And all that kind of made sense to me. So he homeschooled and I made a living. I was a real estate broker in a resort market. So that was the first, my first hint of that baby. I didn't know everything. And then um, both of my sons were injured by their childhood vaccines. And um, at one point, the, the market, our resort market started to crash. It was resort markets crashed first when the, in the big crash. 2004, it started. And by the end of 2005, I hadn't had a paycheck in eight months. We had some savings. We decided to go to Costa Rica. Uh, for a year, and we ended up staying for five. But in Costa Rica, both of us were researching on the internet, and one of my sons had asthma, and the doctor didn't know how he got it, but he did know that he was going to be on Singular and albuterol inhalers for the rest of his life. And I just refused to accept that. I don't know what it was. I just refused, and I started searching online, and I fell into bottomless rabbit holes everywhere. And, you know, I, I have a, a one blog post and one of my favorite quote, quotes is, you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. And that was so yeah. true for me. I did not know what I didn't know. And I started learning all this stuff that was like, oh my God, you know, I'm a, I'm a high school graduate. I'm a college graduate. I'm married to one of the smartest people I ever knew. And there's so much I don't know. There's so much he didn't know. And of course, we just started educating ourselves with information that you can only find if you look. Yes. And if you stay curious, right? Because yes. even, even yeah. what I've seen with, um, you know, first of all, I love your personal story. And I've heard so many of these over the years. And, you know, we were exploring this right around the same time, even in completely different stages of our parenting, you know, back in the early 2000s, that was when my first was a baby. Mm -hmm. And, and it's also like, it's such a unique time, right, Sally, because the internet was now big enough that we really could crowdsource information. Yes. Without knowing what book to look for in the library, right? Right. But we hadn't, there was no social media yet. Mm-hmm. And so there wasn't that, um, what is the word for it? That noise and that clutter of, um, right. I will say negativity because there's so much negativity on mm-hmm. social media. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we, we got to research these health topics and wellness and child mm-hmm. rearing. And, and then I think for me, at least also, many of the things I learned about online, I could then follow up with books. And so there was that, that really great merge and overlap of, hey, somebody online, a stranger, maybe not a stranger, but recommended this book title. And then I go get that book title mm-hmm. at the library or that was before <laughs> all of the other stuff exploded. So yeah. libraries are really useful tools, right? And, uh, you know, I think it's really important to emphasize and acknowledge that time period of uh, the internet and where we were in still shaping the internet and pre-social media. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's a very good point. I never thought about that. Now, when I search stuff, a lot of the things that it's all it's all conventional medicine that you find. You yeah. don't find any outside the box thinking anymore, which is, um, you know, I'm sorry. And I want to say also that I didn't know my kids were vaccine injured. Mm. I thought that what the doctor said, he got asthma out of the blue. Okay. And then, but one of my, my other son had, um, he kind of went into this mini coma like thing. And I think after his first hep B, he was four. And after that, we just didn't vaccinate anymore. He was like in this weird state for several hours. And I finally took him to the emergency room. He threw up and then he was, but he, he sat back to normal. Wow. Um, but I never, ha- I, we never did anymore because we, that at that time, this was 1995, um, nobody pushed you know, yeah. the, my, my pediatrician didn't push it like they do now. Um, and I don't think he was big on, on the whole topic anyway. But so we just stopped. And it wasn't until we got to Costa Rica in 2006. And I started researching. I started putting two and two together. So now when you were, it was, yeah, go ahead. Well, when you were in Costa Rica, mm-hmm. how was the food landscape? Was it different than what you had experienced here? And, and how long were you in Costa Rica? How long of a, this, I mean, this is such a crazy, adventurous, wonderful life. Yeah. So how long was that episode for you? And what did you experience? What did you see in the differences? Well, um, the food was, I mean, they had farmer's markets that then went on, you know, for blocks. Wow. Just, and there was one in <laughs> Alajuela, which is one of the, yeah. one of the provinces there and just huge. And we would go there, you know, at least twice a month. It was an hour from our house, but we would go there twice a month. And, um, you know, it was all local food. And of course they, they all ate meat. They, you know, rice and beans is a staple. They have a, a meal called gallo pinto, which is, you know, how calls it beans and rice and leftovers. <laughs> and um, so, you know, we do we that here that. a lot too. <laughs> yeah. And so we ate that a lot. Um, and, uh, you know, Costa Rica is the greenest place you've ever been. That's the, that's their tagline sort of. And um, everybody, you know, has a garden. I, I went to the farmer's market and there was a guy there that had raw milk in a, in a jug, you know, from his cow. And I passed his house on the way home and his cow was tied up to his fence in his front yard and that's where he got his milk. So, you know, it's, it's a third world country. And we lived in Escazú, which is a big expat community. And we lived there because we had to be online. My husband worked online. So, and I did, I still did uh, property management long distance. I had someone on the ground. And, um, so Escazú was, was more like first world, you know, they had a mall yeah. and a McDonald's. Um, so, and a Sam's club, but just before we left, they opened a Sam's club there. But um, the rest of the country was, third world all the way um but really you know really really nice we, we loved living there and we loved you know eating the food and learning Spanish and and all that but you know I wasn't a foodie I thought you know I owned a fitness business for 17 years wow from <laughs> the from the mid 80s until the you know the mid 2000s or just before we left uh, to go to Costa Rica and that was in the years, I started it in the years when low fat was, was all the rage. And so I taught people how to eat low fat. Wow. And my, my 
my partner and I would go, we'd teach, you know, a bunch of aerobics and step classes. And then we'd go have a cafe con leche uh, with a couple of uh, scoops of sugar and a, um, a fat-free donut. Oh, wow. Because <laughs> we thought that was health food. And <clears throat> so we were still eating low fat when we got to Costa Rica. And somehow we discovered that, you know, we discovered good fats and butter. I remember when we first found out that you could eat butter. We were like, really? Okay. <laughs> so we gave up the low fat lifestyle. But it's funny because at the end of that period, we were both fatter than we've ever been. Mm, I mean, we were, you know, we've lost a hundred pounds between us since we gave up low fat living. But I'd buy Triscuits when the boys were little, I'd buy Triscuits because it said natural on the box. Right. Right. So right, that right. meant it was health food. <laughs> and I never read a label. And if you read a label and you saw all that long list of ingredients, you thought, well, it must be safe because it's in the grocery store, right? So it got to be yeah. good for you. Quite an education, you know, from there to where we are now. It is, but it's also such a testament to your curiosity and to your pursuit of the questions in your own mind. Like, I think yeah. for some people, these questions come up, but then we don't pursue them, right? Right. And so very recently, and, and really what made me just start screaming at you, like, get on the podcast. We have to talk. We have to talk. We have to, <laughs> is that here I am. And I think I'm also curious and I think I'm also curious. absolutely. And you put out a post, you put out an article about breathing and how important breathing is. And, and I'm like, yes, of course it is. But I also recognized how little I actually knew about it. And so Sally, I mean, then I, thanks to your article and your pursuit and your curiosity, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is something I have to learn more about. <laughs> right? mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so there's, there's so many wonderful traditions and the, the world can be our teacher if we allow ourselves yeah. to pursue those sparks and those questions. So tell us a little bit about what sparked that for you, an overview if you can. And then mm -hmm. Why is breathing important? I mean, we just do it every day, right? It's one of those reflexive, non-conscious things we do. So give us the one, two, three of that. Well, I'll tell you, uh, you know, I, I'm an AA. So I've, I've been sober for 34 years and I was in my, I was in Al-Anon first. Okay. And I went to an AA, and, but my favorite Al-Anon meeting was the AA Al-Anon meeting, the combo meeting, because there they talked about stuff I could really identify with. And one guy walked up to me, we we're talking about my brother and how I thought my brother was an alcoholic, he's not. And the guy looked at me and he said, he said, what about your drinking? And I said, oh my God, look at the time I got to go. And, but that question stuck in my head. And it was like, when I was a child and I did something that I knew I shouldn't have done. If I was, you know, I, I, I had to correct it. I had to correct it. And so the, the next meeting I went to, I picked up a white chip because that question burned a hole in my head mm, and I had wow. to solve that problem. And that is how things are for me. If I, if I get a hint of something, there's a little thing in me that says, you want, you want to pursue this. I don't know. I, then, then I go after it. And, you know, people, sometimes people will say, what do you think about this? And I'll say, I don't know. It's on my radar, but you know, there's so yeah. many hours of the day. Right. And, but the breathing thing, um, 
I listened. I can't remember. Oh, I saw a video uh, on YouTube a health with a health guy. I guess I saw probably saw it on Instagram first, and it was about mouth taping mm-hmm. and taping your mouth at night so that you breathe your nose. And then I saw mm-hmm. a book um, all about that and why breathing through your nose is so important. It's critically important. So I really started mouth taping in earnest. And then I heard about the cold water thing, you know, by jumping in a bath of ice water. Well, I'm Mm, not doing that. Yeah. So (laughs) So you say right now. Yeah, I know exactly (laughs) why. Yeah. But uh, but I did, I do, you know, get a blast of cold water at the end of a shower. And I see the benefit of that. Yeah. and the guy who talks about the cold water also talks about breathing. So I, I downloaded his app and he has a quick breathing exercise and I started doing it. And my husband started doing it. It's just breathing. And then you hold your breath at the end. Yeah. And you know how important your, your ability, your, your lung capacity, those are the words I'm looking for. Your lung capacity is the number one marker for longevity. Yeah. Wow. I know. Wow. I did, a, I did a TikTok video. I was like, I take all these vitamins. I eat all this good food. I yeah. drink all this raw milk. I should be practicing holding my breath. Yes. You know, I mean, something so simple that escapes us because you know what? Breathing is just happening in the background all the time. Yes. And we don't have to think about it. But Sally, I love your story. And I love your thing about the cold water, because let me tell you. So for those who listen to this regularly, you will know I get migraines. I have chronic migraines. I've had them since I can remember early childhood. All the women in my family have them. So, and I've done all of these things over the years to mitigate and reduce the severity and reduce the um, occurrences. And I will say when I first came across that whole cold water thing and I was doing cold showers, there's something about uh, getting in that cold shower that makes you go, <gasps> it makes you breathe differently. Yes, it does. And from everything, if you go down the rabbit hole of migraines and dysautonomia and neurological everything, you, you get to the vagus nerve and uh. you start to understand the relationship between chronic pain, migraines, chronic neurological disorders, and the vagus nerve. And the relationship between breathing and the vagus nerve. And so I did notice that when I was regularly shocking myself with cold water, I did have fewer migraines and they didn't last as long. So it's, it's one of those things where it's like, oh my gosh, that physical comfort of not having ice cold water. (laughs) It's really hard to do these things, even when we know the benefits and know we should, it's really hard to do them. Yes. Yeah. My husband, my husband's 72. I'm 67. And, you know, at, at our ages, things slow down. I can't, you know, my, I had, we had our grandchildren this weekend and she's six and he's three. And so she's skipping and she said, skip with me. I'm like, oh my God. Uh, so I skip with her uh, a little bit, you know, thank God I still can. But, you know, you don't just pop out of your chair and run to the kitchen. You get up, you stretch, you go to the kitchen. <laughs> um, so we take a lot of vitamins and we take a lot of supplements and we drink things and we put drops under our tongue and all kinds of stuff. 
And at some point you're like, I, I can't, uh, okay, I'm done for the day. I'm not putting any more drops under my tongue, you know, cause you yeah. just, you, you know, it takes a lot to take care of yourself these days in particular, I think. Right. Um, right. But it's worth it. I mean, neither one of us are on any meds, nor will we ever be. I can't imagine what we would take a med for regularly, you right. know, every day. So, cause we watch our blood sugar, which I think is, you know, another critical thing, the breathing and the blood sugar. You know, there's a, uh, a study about metformin. Metformin is the drug, the blood sugar regulating drug that pre-diabetics and diabetics go on. The danger of metformin and berberine is a natural supplement and we take berberine sometimes. But what it does is it, it keeps your blood pressure from shooting up after you have a hot fudge sundae. Oh, goodness. So well, I know how to solve that one. <laughs> yeah. So, but the danger of metformin is that it, it allows diabetics and pre-diabetics to eat like they don't have diabetes. Right. They eat right. a hot fudge sundae, they take a metformin, boom. But people who take metformin live longer than most people. But it's not the metformin that's doing it. It's the regulated blood sugar. Wow. You know, so I think blood sugar is a huge keeping that regulated. You know, everything we buy, a lot of stuff that we buy is packaged, has sugar in it. Yes, of course. And, you know, so, and we, and something else that was pointed out to me is that, you know, we can eat, I can't, I wish I could remember the book I read this in just recently, but we can eat food. We can eat bananas all year round. Yeah. Of course, we probably not... shouldn't even eat, but what bananas, if you lived in Florida, you could eat a banana, but we can have pears all year round and dried fruit all year round. And, oh, I know what it was. It was, um, it was a, a guy who, the guy who was on uh, The Great Human Race, it was a National Geographic documentary. And he, um, he, 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 he talks about that, you know, eating foods in season. Yes. Which know? we talk about all the time on here. Yes. How vital that is. How vital that is. Because, you know, it's one thing if you, you know, people think kale is such a health food and it is a health food and, food and you know, when it's in season, but when you can eat kale raw all year long, you're going to get a lot of oxalates. You're going to get, there are going to be problems, but your body can handle the short period. It's in season for like a month or two months or something. I don't know. Where you are? Wow. I don't know. For us, I don't, it's in I'm, season I'm in about apartment. nine months. <laughs> oh, it's in season for nine months? Yep. Wow. Yep. Ish, you know, it, it, yeah. it varies, but it's one of the, so we have what we call overwintered kale, which is, oh my gosh, my favorite. Overwintered kale is kale that you plant in the fall and you get a few in the fall here before it gets to sub 20 degrees. And then it substantially sh slows down during our coldest January, February, March, mm -hmm. but then come April, it starts again. And it's the most tender, sweetest kale you have ever had. And it's such a gift. Mm -hmm. And then we'll get kale. We'll get kale again until it gets too hot. So July, mm -hmm. August, it'll completely stop, but it mm -hmm. slows down in like end of June. So I guess that's more like six or seven months than nine months, but we, but depending on, you know, if you have a greenhouse, you can get it all winter long. Right. Or, Here. you know, Kroger organics, you can get it all winter long. Right. 
you know, <laughs> you mean from the store, from the store. Yeah. So yeah, that's which is totally different. Do it. Yeah. Yeah. Totally different. It's shipped thousands of miles, but you know, I think eating in season, um, we, and just sugars and everything. So yeah, that's, that's a thing that we really work hard to avoid is, you know, dried well, fruits and all that kind of thing. You know, it's interesting, Sally, that, um, sugar, you know, that, that gets its own, its own separate discussion. And we have, um, but yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more on that and the importance mm-hmm. of moderating sugar yes. by almost whatever means necessary. Right? That's, yeah. There are some severe situations where I would say no, but there's for the most part, whether it's not having it in the house or whether it's setting mm-hmm. yourself rules or there's, there's all kinds of techniques. And we, I actually have a separate podcast called sugar and how to moderate. Uh-huh. To moderate okay. your sugar intake. And it's got a whole bunch of great tips on really if if you're struggling with your kids having too much sugar or struggling with yourself having too much, how can you put certain things into place so that it's not such a big temptation? Right. Mm-hmm. It is right. It's socially and because we get addicted to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's something else I was going to comment on it. Now I've kind of forgotten. Oh, oh, fibers, right? Because part part of what we see that happens and that's real and true is that the sugars are often paired with the fibers that we need. Mm-hmm. So for example, squash, sweet potatoes, we need those fibers in there. And mm-hmm. I'm sure you know we need this mm-hmm. huge diversity of fibers for the prebiotics in our gut, right. for the for the bacteria, the diversity of bacteria, they need this diversity of fibers in order to stay there and help mm-hmm. us and be the mm-hmm. gut microbiome that we rely on. And slow down the sugar. But, exactly. Yeah. But the, the thing is, is in nature, these are often paired. You get right. sweet potato, which has fiber and the sugar in it. You get mm-hmm. all of your winter squashes. And of course, in the plant world, <laughs> if you're planting these things, those sugars are there to support the plant and the plant's growth initially, but are also beneficial for us. But we also have to learn how to prepare these things. For mm-hmm. example, grains, like you and I have different techniques, fermenting grains, sprouting, uh, soaking, which will help to release the, well, certain of the nutrients that inhibit mm-hmm. the uptake of other nutrients, right? So there's whole mm-hmm. uh, trainings and teachings on how to best prepare the different high, high carby foods that we need because we need the accompanying fibers. Yes. Yes, I agree. Yes. Long story long. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true though. I mean, it's, you know, it's, um, we, we, eat very simply. It's just my husband and I now. And so we, you know, we eat a lot of soup. Yes. I'll put a, you know, I'll put a, uh, we get a, I have a food buying club. Yes. Which we're going to talk about. So don't give yes. away too much yet. Yeah. But I get a pastured chicken, a broiler, a whole one frozen. And mm-hmm. I, you know, um, the, there's a, a very famous farmer who says that when he first started selling broilers, that people were like, what do I do with that? because we're used to buying legs in a package and thighs in a package. But anyway, I put a broiler in the, in the Instant Pot, a little bit of water, I'd cook that for 40, it's frozen solid, cook it for 45 minutes and then it's, you know, I, I bone it. And I, I discovered these, those soup bags. Mm-hmm. So I'll put all my bones and skin and everything that's not, you know, 
actually, I'm going to ingest. And I put them in the bag and drop it back in the pot. With all and the you're talking about one of those fabric bags. Fabric, fabric bag. bags that yeah. you have a tie off and it like yes. you can get a big one for your bones you get a small one for your herbs and it lets the water through without yes. letting the stuff into your broth yes I just bought some you have one right there good yes yes yeah. so it's like a net so it's not a, to be confused with any of those plastic bags that are used. no this is 100 <laughs> cotton muslin bag yeah and um so we, we make soup that way. And then we put um, all kinds of vegetables in there, you know, um, and just we have a pot of soup on almost all the time. Yep. And that's fabulous. So you get all that broth. Because it, to me, it was kind of a pain in the butt to take the bones out, put the bones in the water, cook the bones for two days, have the broth and then make soup from the broth. I was like, I'm just going to do the whole thing at once. So, yeah, I mean, I've, I've simplified a slightly different way than you have, but I love that, you know, we've both been growing in these ways of preparing food for so long that we have different techniques. And so <clears throat> I guess I'm lucky enough that I learned, I must've learned how to cook a whole chicken as a child because I cannot ever remember not knowing how to cook a whole chicken. Yeah. Um, and there's so many incredible ways. Like I just, I love my kitchen. I uh -huh. love cooking. I love new ideas and new ways of exploring. So uh -huh. I will do one in the oven. I'll do a whole chicken on the stove. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I will part it. I'll cut it into the eight parts. You uh -huh. can always start, you know, by eight parts. I, I, I will simplify. I'll break this down. You cut the breasts at the breastbone. You cut each of the leg and thigh off at the body. And then you cut that again. And then you cut the wings off. So you get two wings, mm -hmm. two legs, mm -hmm. two thighs, two breasts. That's eight parts. Uh -huh. And then you have the back and the neck, because I don't know about you, but our broilers always come with a neck attached. Stuff. Yes. And I like that because look, that's so good for your stock. Yeah. And then you've got the back and the neck for the stock pot right away. So that's one mm -hmm. way if I want to make a recipe that doesn't take as long to cook, because right. quite frankly, I'm not an Instapot kind of person. I'm not a yeah. um, pressure cooker kind of person at all. I've just avoided all of that. So we can huh. get into that stubborn mindset later. <laughs> but that's well, see, where I am right now. Here's, here's one difference between you and I. I don't like to cook. Okay. See, yeah. I'm not, I'm, I'm not a cook. So oh, fast I would easy. beg to differ on that. Yeah. Well, I do cook, but yeah. I'm you not do. A, yeah. Regularly. And you share yeah, lots of complex ideas and, and principles and guidance on that. So I don't know why you say that about yourself. Yeah. You are. A well, cook. you know what? Maybe you my don't mom, love it and that's uh, okay. Yeah. But you are a cook. My mom was a gourmet cook mm. and she would have recipes and spices and she'd be in the kitchen for hours. And I'm like, no, nah, I'm going in. I'm going to cook something. I'm going to eat it. Yeah. I'm out of here. Yeah. So, so that, well, that's why I think I'm not a cook. Well, really not yourself. I'm yeah, relabeling okay. you right now. Sally is okay. a cook. <laughs> um, and I hear you. I mean, I don't, let's see. I don't want to in any way misrepresent that I'm cooking for seven, eight, nine right. every single day. Yeah. I'm not spending two, three, four hours in the kitchen every day. Yeah. Much less every meal. So I'm totally with you. Like it has yeah. to be quick and easy. And I'm all about yeah. like cranking out those half hour recipes or putting something on and letting the heat do the work. Yeah. Which we know, 
but you know, my grandmother, beloved, beloved grandmother who <laughs> grandmothers are awesome. I mean, let's just put she, that out. There I know. Right. right? Yeah. <laughs> Grandma Sally. Right. Yes. Um, she would always say, I would always just tell her, oh, you're such a good cook. Cause I loved what she did. And she would go, mm -hmm. no, I just know how to follow a recipe. <laughs> and I mean, there's, there's truth in that. And there's truth in both things, right? She really was, mm -hmm. but there's also mm -hmm. a lot to be said for knowing a formula mm -hmm. and being able to adapt that formula, mm -hmm. right? If you know how to make cheese sauce, for example, it's a very simple formula. It is butter flour, milk, and cheese. Mm -hmm. And then if you know that formula, you can adopt it and adapt it however you want. So mm -hmm. a little bit of this cheese instead of all of that cheese and a little bit of this, uh, well, the butter is standard, but um, mm -hmm. you know, you can just change it out, make it so thicker or soupier yeah. or yeah. So I learned pretty early on that like, if I'm going to be cooking for a crowd all the time, I have to <laughs> learn these formulas. And then you can just right. adapt the formula to whatever dish you're preparing. Mm -hmm. So I love this tangent we got off on, but I really mm -hmm. want to circle back real quick to two things. Okay. One is that the whole idea of chicken and always having a soup on and chicken being seasonal, right? Because here mm -hmm. you're in Kentucky, right? I'm in Maryland and we have mm -hmm. our, our seasons, right? And so chickens, which it's like, so many people don't quite realize that because of all of this modern convenience, mm -hmm. chicken is actually a, a summer and fall food because the chickens that are raised outdoors, mm -hmm. they need the warmth right. in order for the food that they're eating to turn into what we eat. <laughs> okay. Now I'm getting depressed. Why? Because. I can't eat chicken in the winter. No, of course you can. We have freezers, but, but the yeah. point being that we have the, I never thought about is seasonal. that being a seasonal thing. It is in our areas, right? Of course. Costa Rica, you got it all year round. Right. But, <laughs> but here, um, you know, the, at my farmer is doing his last batch of broilers and he said, it's really too yep. cold because yep. they're, they're not growing. Exactly. So, exactly. Yeah. See, yeah. So we have the advantage of modern refrigeration and freezing. So uh -huh. farmer can put some in the freezer and we can put some in the freezer. And, uh -huh. you know, I think there's less, um, there's some things that are less physically seasonal for us. Like if we just eat fruit all year round, yeah, yeah. we're going to have the effects of that sugar. Mm -hmm. Chicken soup is maybe a little bit different. Yeah, it's gotta be. It's got to be so not to not to say that we can't eat chicken all year round, but simply for us to be yeah. conscious of what it takes to raise them. Absolutely. For meat, for egg production and mm -hmm. how we can be conscious of that in our food preparation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I never thought of that. So I guess is beef seasonal? Beef is also seasonal, but it's definitely more when you think about, you know, what yeah. we know about grazing. And when the grass is so at its best, mm -hmm. right? It's at its best in the spring and the rapidly growing spring and the rapidly growing yeah. fall. So what happens? The cows eat that grass. They get that really rich uh, vitamin K. Uh -huh. And that marbles their, that's, that's what their fat is then. And then also like, and I don't know, I have never seen any studies to support this. So I can't say this definitively. An idea that I have heard and that I would love to explore more 
is the idea that when the cows, the uh, pigs, the sheep, whatever it is, they're outside getting the sunshine, they're making that conversion of sunshine to vitamin D, then we eat that fat if it's slaughtered at the right time, right? If you get a beef that's slaughtered in the middle of winter, that's probably not going to be as high vitamin D, right? Because of all the things we know about sunlight, and vitamin D absorption through the skin. But if we get that at the peak time, that fat, I hope this is the idea that I want to explore, right? With, that that fat will be higher in those fat soluble vitamins that we need, that they're getting through the grass and through the sunshine. But mm -hmm. traditionally beef is more known as a winter food. Right. Right. But if you think about it, they get fat all summer. They get slaughtered in the fall. Mm -hmm. Then they're there in the right there in the winter. Right. And you know, if you have, if you're going to raise a cow all winter, you got to feed it. Hey, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. But when you think about it too, it's like what um, the traditional methods of preservation, smoking, curing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't know that anywhere got reliably cold enough to freeze meat all winter. So you right. have the smoking and the curing, and that could happen over the, the whole month of November or something like that. Right. You have the mm -hmm. smokehouse outside and you let it go, or you have the curing. So when you think about these things as traditional means of food preservation, we have to look at what was the environment like. Right, exactly. Yeah. See, I always learn so much from you. Oh my gosh. Things <laughs> well, that you never versa, think about. Too. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I have got to do something with my puppy. Can you hang on one second? Oh yes, of course. She's scratching at the door. Well, hang yes, on. go do your thing. Yeah. And I'll just keep talking about beef and how wonderful it is. <laughs> so the concept of beef being... Um, a winter food is so great when it comes to what we enjoy in the winters as well, because it is so good to have these slow roasted roasts in the oven during the winter time, when that's really today, the best time for us to be turning on an oven all day long, right? You're muted. Yes. Yes. So, I mean, it really goes hand in hand, the traditional methods and what is best use scenario for us even today. Yes. Right. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't mean don't have your summer barbecues. <laughs> Do have your summer barbecues. So all of us talk about meat and food and seasonality. Sally, uh -huh. there's one really important concept I want to touch on with you today. And that's the future of how we are getting our food and how we can have food security mm. in our households and communities. And something else that you and I have in common is that we are both strong women leaders in our communities mm. Mm. and work day in and day out to bring a level of food security to our communities through buying clubs. And so very briefly, what is a buying club? It means something a little bit different to everybody who says it. There's all kinds of models, but essentially it's direct, uh, direct sourcing from local farms to local communities. And I really wanna emphasize the locality of that because buying clubs are not 
nationwide, right? There, there, there might be some who claim that, but to, to us, it is a very localized phenomenon. Whether you're in whatever part of the country, it's got to be local to you in order to enhance and cultivate the food security in that community. And so that's something you and I have believed in for a really long time. And, mm -hmm. and not only do we believe in it as an idea, we live it, we breathe it, we put our blood, sweat, and tears into making this happen. Mm -hmm. And what I wanna to talk to you about right now is why is um, this model, a localized food system where people know the sources of their food, why is this the future of how we're gonna be food secure? Well, for instance, you know, there's all these rumors about how we're going to run out of diesel. We run out of diesel. There's no trucks bringing food to Kroger. It's just not going to happen. Right. So, you know, why are we, and all the food in the grocery stores is trucked thousands of miles from California, the bread basket. You know, there's, there's a price to pay for everything. And I'm very conscious of this, that, you know, Kroger has employees that are local. Um, the bread basket in California hires thousands and thousands of people. So if we all bought our food locally and stopped buying from the bread basket, they'd have to find other work. So I realize there's that price to pay. However, I'm only going to eat food that goes, I mean, I live in Kentucky. There are so many farmers and the real food movement has really taken off. And there are more and more farmers, homesteaders are uh, I love homesteading, but of course not everybody can do that. There are a lot right. of people that live in Lexington in the condo. Um, so the food buying club is a way for me who lives out in the country. And I happen to know a bunch of farmers because I researched it. And so I go to my farm, I pick up all the dairy once a week because there's a ton of stuff that I pick up from him. But all the other farmers drop off for me. Um, I get that food. I bag it up for the customers. I mean, for the members, they're not customers, they're members. Mm -hmm. And I drop it. I have six drop points. But, the, you know, I drive, you know, I spend all, I, it's about a 200 mile round trip on Thursdays. But before I had a food buying club, I would drive three hours every other week to get my raw milk from, from the only farmer I knew, the closest farmer I knew. And not everybody can do that. I work for myself, yeah. I work at home. So people who work nine to five, they're gonna spend their Saturday driving you know, three hours. It's, first of all, most people don't know what a remarkable food raw milk is. And they don't realize how important it is to eat clean food. Yeah, you know, most you, people don't, right. Most people don't, and they don't read a label. They buy the box of mac and cheese. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so they don't know the formula when it they don't know the formula sometimes mm. yeah and when it comes to um you know I love what you're saying here because it's like 200 miles versus that 3,000 miles of food trucked mm. in from who knows where and what is the input cost of having most of our food produced in California and the mm -hmm. migrant worker situation and all of that but there's a couple points mm -hmm. I want to touch on here which is looking at if we want local and let's let's call local just for the sake of this conversation mm -hmm. <laughs> local uh bioregion so anything within that 150 to 200 mile radius okay bioregion right that's so, that's, a, that's a good a good circle yeah it's a good circle yeah. um without being 
restricted and constricted. So anywhere you go, if you just keep looking at it as kind of a flow. And so some of the things we have to ask ourselves is what, what do we want to cultivate in this bioregion? Because you're right, what happens if there's any problem with any of the vulnerabilities in our centralized food production system? There's so many places that could have a vulnerability, whether it's the transportation, whether it's, you know, regardless of transportation, if we run short on diesel, there's so many places that that makes farms inoperable from mm -hmm. tractors to uh, storage, to cold, cold storage, right? Mm -hmm. Diesel power generators. Mm -hmm. There's so many things that make that inoperable. So the more we can localize our food production and our food mm -hmm. distribution, the more secure it becomes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And ultimately, that's the most basic need. I mean, other than breathing, which you've touched on, our food Number and water. Number two. Yeah, our food and water are some of the mm -hmm. most basic needs we have. And of course, we, then we have this whole other component of it, which is like, hey, you, you're in Kentucky. I'm in America. Grass grows everywhere here. I'm not talking about lawns. I'm talking about grass and forage. Can you eat grass? <laughs> No, I can't eat grass. I don't want to no. eat grass, but these wonderful, wonderful animals, chickens, goats, sheep, cows, horses, not for food, but these other animals, they can eat the grass mm -hmm. and they can turn it into food for us, whether that's milk or meat, right? They mm -hmm. can turn that mm -hmm. into, and it's, it's a system. It's a closed loop system that makes so much, uh, biological sense. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so what the, the, the crux of this being buying clubs and local food systems, local food production, processing, and local transportation strengthens and upholds food security for all. Yes, I agree. And food security Absolutely. is different than getting everything you want whenever you want it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think uh, the number one curse today is convenience. We are, we are addicted to convenience. And if we could get over that even a little bit, you know, like some people, they want to go to Kroger mm -hmm. and Kroger only. They don't want to go to Kroger for some stuff and then to the drop for other stuff. But once, but so, you know, a huge part of this for me is educating people on the value of real food that, you know, Triscuits are not food. It's, it's calories and flavor, you know? Um, the mac and cheese in the box is devoid of nutrition. Well, I think you hit on a really important point, and it's something that I've got, I've got a draft for it, and I want to talk about the importance of convenience, yeah. or rather the, the illusion of convenience, because by golly, it will mm. be really inconvenient if <laughs> we become, the, the majority of us become food insecure. That will be dramatically inconvenient. Yes. And the price we're paying right now for convenience, what we think of as convenience is a very high price because we know this, Sally, this is in so many headlines, chronic depression, mm -hmm. chronic high, high levels of obesity, high levels of malnutrition, chronic illness, asthma, diabetes, heart disease, all of these things. This is the price we are paying as a society for convenience. Absolutely. And 
frankly, that's not a price that's, that's acceptable to me. And you know, you too, for, for mm-hmm. the whole time now, that's not something that's acceptable to us. And it's also so dramatically outsourcing our ability to feed ourselves. Yes. And that's where it becomes even more dangerous because what happens? We have so many vulnerabilities in the centralized food system. So what happens if any of those vulnerabilities occur? We, do we have the knowledge? Do you know enough neighbors, whoever you are, wherever you are, do you know enough neighbors who know how to find, produce, or process enough food to keep your community from starving? Right. Starving, right? This isn't about, it's not always going to be about getting whatever we want whenever we want it. Mm-hmm. Although you will find that the closer you get to your food production, the more you want that which is available at that time of year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that is such a powerful motivator for me is to, is to have people, have farmers be able to find their customers around them. And have people be able to find their food. You know, I started, I have a food club where I drive and I, I drop the food. But I started a hub in Northern Kentucky. And I found farmers. I found a couple of farmers locally. I'm still looking for farmers, but I have a beef farmer, I have a chicken farmer, and I have a raw milk farmer. And so everybody orders. The farmers drop the food at the drop location, which is a cafe. And so you get a donut and your raw milk but it's a cafe and people go there and pick up their food. So I don't touch it. I just manage the orders and getting the orders to the farmer. And I love that because I tried to set it up so that it's a, the farmers delivered to the foodies on the same day. So yeah. they got to meet each other. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But it, was, it was not convenient. People didn't want to pick up at 10 o'clock on Saturday morning. So it happens mm-hmm. on a Wednesday, the farmers drop the food. And the foodies pick it up after three o'clock. The food is all there. But they have local food. And of course, the farmer's name is right in the package. Yeah, exactly. They can call the farmer. And, and the other component of this, there's two things I want to mention. The community of people seeing each other yes. and knowing like, hey, this is a person in my network. This is somebody who shares an ideology with me and who shares yeah. these principles with me. And they can form relationships and form larger bits of community yes and the other thing I want to mention is this is this is kind of a little bit of a sour point for me which is source verifying and that's something you do that's something I do but unfortunately Sally as we know with any good thing some not so great players come in and, and try to pretend like they are that good thing yeah so I know many, many scenarios in my area and beyond where farmers are not telling the truth truth (laughs) on the buying club. Right. Yeah. And so I think it's really important that advocates like you and I are able to check the farms and say, you know, this is what they're doing great. And this is Mm -hmm. what they're not doing great. But that depends that 100% depends on somebody with our kind of knowledge base, being able to go and verify and a certain amount, not anymore in my case. I mean, the transparency thing is always good. And I, I know if a farmer's being transparent with, transparent with me or not. And mm-hmm. I'd much rather 
much rather work with a farmer who says, hey, you know, I feed some grain in the winter. Um, most of my most of my buyers want it marbled, right? I'd much right. rather buy from that farmer than a farmer who tells me, no, it's a hundred percent grass fed. And then I see the feed bags on their floor. Yeah. Right. I mean, that piece, that transparency piece is so important to me. And then being able to, to source verify it because we want this business to go to the farmers who are being transparent, not the right. ones who are trying to make a quick buck on the back of other farmers' hard work in this arena. Absolutely. And it's way harder and way more expensive to farm real food than it is, you know, to buy any old grain at Tractor Supply or, you know, where. Well, you know, that's- I love the, Tractor the, Supply. But don't the get me economics wrong. of that, right? It really does also, a couple of things come into play with scale mm -hmm. um, and also labor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> One thing I want to touch on with labor is that some, some situations- I really, really strongly believe in supporting farms who are treating humans fairly. Yes. Really strongly believe in that. Not all farms treat their humans fairly. And so they can have more competitive prices. Right. Because they're not paying their workers fairly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that that's an interference rather than a, a um, cost of doing business. Yeah, but but the whole concept of local food has to be more expensive. I think that there's a lot of nuance in there, but I think what the most important thing to understand is if we want to see X, Y, or Z farm stay on the land and stay productive, we have to be able to pay what it costs for that farm to stay in production. Right. And Sally... I don't know what it's, it's hard. Like. I feel guilty going to a farmer and saying mm. the price has to work for you, but I have to mark it up. And so it's got to work for the consumer and it has to work for me and yeah. just do the best you can. Well, yeah. And, and that's, yeah. you know, that's also the crux of how do we look at the, the scenarios of people who are truly food insecure right now? Yeah. Right. Because the, sometimes the prices of local farms, it's, it's mind boggling. It's like, it's like yeah. somebody looking at us and saying, well, just buy a yacht. Right. Like, it's just, right. I mean, besides the principle of it, yeah, but it's out of the question. <laughs> so yeah. If we, and, and, and so there's always that level of sensitivity to that, but understanding that in order to create a food system that provides food security, to mm -hmm. all so that everyone's basic needs are met. You mm -hmm. have a disparity right now. And we I believe, and I hope with every fiber of my being that we are the, the foundation that we're building, Sally, and our work and people building on our work, mm -hmm. we can recreate a food system that works for all. I'm all ears. Well, I'm dying to, you know, I mean, I, I can think of so many communities. Yep. You know, in, in my, we have a, a group that meets once a week and we talk about politics, we talk about food and we talk about all kinds of stuff and what's, you know, the, the current, what's happening today. And so I brought raw milk to our last meeting and everybody got to drink it. They were like, 
this is one guy held the cup and he was looking at it and he was like, okay, don't watch me drink it. Oh, okay. Because, and I felt the same way when I first thought about drinking rum. I bought a gallon from that guy down at the, at the farmer's market. The first gallon I bought from him, I was like, I'm not going to drink that. You know, because it was, it, 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 there's just so much noise to get through. Yes. And so he finally drank it and he was like, that's really good. Yeah. But you could live on it. Yeah. So people, people see raw milk for $10 a gallon. That's what it is through the food club. And they're like, $10, you can get it for $2 a gallon at the grocery store. So they have to be educated on why you would bother. There's so much other food you don't have to buy if you're buying, drinking raw milk, you know, it's, know, you can live on it. Well, there's also that there's, you know, we all make choices. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And we all have priorities. Mm-hmm. And for me, one of my highest priorities has always been nutritious food for my children. And so we've foregone yeah. a lot of other things. Mm-hmm. because we chose that. I chose that as a priority very early on. That I'm going to build mm-hmm. the best foundation of health that I can for my children. Mm-hmm. And so there's a huge difference. Like, and I really want to make a distinction between uh, Americans who are middle-class and financially secure and making different choices with how to spend their money. Right. Then Americans who are not financially stable, who really are not food secure, all of that. And so right now, I'm not gonna talk about those who are food insecure, truly food insecure. And I am gonna talk about what you're talking about, which is people making choices with their dollars and understanding what's important and why, mm-hmm. right? Because when yeah. part of our job is constantly to teach and to share knowledge and to share curiosity and to share our stories so that other people become curious. Yes. And that is, is so that hopefully we can shift, uh, shift priorities. Maybe it's one less vacation a year, or maybe it's a more modest vacation and put more of your budget into local food. Or maybe it is a less expensive birthday cake and more, more, more fresh meat, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Whatever it is, it's, it's simply asking people to explore this information and then inviting them to make a different choice or to reprioritize family finances. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's a totally different scenario than, than the food insecure or the, the people who are struggling day to day. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's different solutions there, right? People who, mm-hmm. who cannot afford to heat their homes, we can't say reallocate right. much to here. We have to figure out how our networks and how our farms can mm-hmm. help support the most food insecure. Right. Yeah, I would love that. I would love that. Yeah, I mean, on a, a system-wide level. Bank. Yeah. Something, right? Something, Something. for sure. Something. Because I feel like once people start drinking raw milk, I mean, raw milk is like the gateway. Pastured eggs and raw milk. Yeah. And once people start to eat that food, you just feel so good about it. Yeah. You know, and it's, you start to go, okay. And it's, it's like a gateway. And from a farm, you know, or a source verified. Absolutely. Yes. Oh, yeah. I've been buying from my farmer 
Well, now I, I know several farmers and they're mm -hmm. uh, all of them I trust. So there's like, I, I got a, a core of like five raw milk farmers in our area, immediate area. And that's really good to know. Yes, exactly. And I've been buying from my farm, the, the, the farm that I buy from now for like five years. So we, I know them very well. Yep, building those relationships, it's key. Building those, it is, yeah. it is. Well, I think we've covered quite a lot here. <laughs> <laughs> the future of our food systems. Yes. Staying curious. Yes, I don't know what it is, but I think when you finally admit that you don't know everything, Right. It, you start to go, okay. And then you, you know, I, I was talking to my um, organic pork farmer the other day, just on texting. And I, I asked her a question about something and she told me, I was like, how did I not know that? I said, when am I going to know everything? And she, when you die, apparently there's enlightenment. It's like, okay. Well, you know, what's so humbling to me is that I, I, I frequently feel, and this is only a feeling, I frequently mm -hmm. feel like, oh, I should know so much more about X, Y, or Z. Like I love plants and planting and gardening and permaculture. And so I'm constantly, you know, a little bit, a little bit chastising myself for not knowing more, not, you mm -hmm. know, this is the whole big trap of being not enough. Yeah. And yeah. then I'll call one of my favorite plant farmers and I'll say, you know, I was really wondering about the blah, 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 blah whatever it is. Oh, I don't know. And I'm like, oh my gosh, amazing. <laughs> it's, it's not that I don't know enough. It's that some things are an, an entire lifetime journey. They really are. And that individually, we're never going to know all of it. We're never even going to know a big piece of it. And that's why networks of people are so yeah. important. And that's why also documentation is important, right? One of the, one of a huge thrill I had several years ago, a friend of mine works at the USDA archives, the, the big library for USDA. And I got to visit and I got to go back into the stacks and the research they're doing. And it's, it was incredible. Sally. So one person's whole job was to decipher years and years worth of a farmer's records who was growing apples and that they have these symbols and these notes for which apple was the most crisp, the most red. I mean, just this meticulous record keeping. And because that one person kept those records, we have this library, like figurative library of knowledge on that process and on the outcome of those processes. So that's what we have for and with each other. We can, somebody else can spend a lifetime learning about milkweed and then give me what I need to know. Mm -hmm. or right yeah we can't know everything about grow? everything right yeah yeah it's very it's remarkable because <laughs> you know I know so many farmers and and I can there's a ton of people that I can call and ask and I forgot to mention that I also have a group on Facebook that um where there's almost a thousand people in there, all Kentuckians, and we can ask each other questions. We can find uh, raw milk in our areas. There's a lot we can, a lot of information there. A lot of really smart people have been doing this for a really long time. So I, I love having that at my disposal. So um, you're, uh, you're frozen. I hope, I wonder if you can hear me. Oh. Are you there? 
still going. Still recording. Hi. <laughs> uh, I don't know what to do. I wonder if she can pop back in. Ah, there you are. Hello, can you hear me? Sally, I think I ah. lost my connection there for a minute. Yeah, I kept talking. <laughs> you were frozen. Technical glitch there, sorry. Technical. Yeah, well. Well, I think that that is an indication that it's probably a good time to wrap up. Yes, yes. Yeah, you're frozen again. So I'm gonna go. <laughs> it was great, Liz, I love you. And we'll talk again soon. And I can't wait to see the article on convenience. All right. Sally. Yes. I lost you there again for a second. Sorry I know. About that. It's okay. It's okay. Okay. So love you. Yes. Okay. Eat, eat good food. Eat for health. Know your farmer. Yes. And grow some food. And we are signing off now and okay. technical glitches are winning. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.